Hello, welcome to Orion Talks. My name is Suat Chibukju. I am a senior fellow at Orion Policy Institute. We have a distinguished guest today, Dr. Paul Post. Welcome, Paul. Well, thank you so much, Suat, for having me on the podcast. Uh, thanks for coming. Uh, Dr. Post is an associate professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Chicago. He studies international relations with a focus on international security. He's the author of many articles uh, and three books, The Economics of War, published in 2006, Organizing Democracy in 2018, and The Arguing About Alliances, which is published in 2019. Dr. Post, I am following you on Twitter and your recent post, especially about the John Mearsheimer's arguments about who is responsible in the Ukraine crisis have received so much attention. And uh, John Mearsheimer argues that the West and NATO are responsible for the Russian aggression in Ukraine. And you recently expressed your disagreement on his opinion. Could you elaborate on why you disagree with Mearsheimer and what are your counter arguments? So absolutely, this is such a important question about the comments that my colleague, John Mearsheimer, has made. And, you know, I want to preface what we're talking about here with, I have a lot of respect for, for John. Um, he's uh, been a great mentor, great senior colleague of mine. But, you know, John is someone who is known for wanting to put out provocative statements, right? He is someone who is not afraid to do that. And, and he has indeed done that. And of course, what people are pointing out is that it's not so much that he's putting out provocative statements right now, it's that he has made statements going way back 2014. And even earlier, you can go back to the 1990s and look at some of his work where he was talking about the potential for conflict between Russia and Ukraine, and in particular, putting a lot of the fault, if you will, on that potential on the West, in particular, talking about how the expansion of NATO, and this has been the, the key part of his argument since 2014, that the expansion of NATO following the end of the Cold War would be perceived by Russia as a, inherently aggressive, and that would put Russia in a position where it felt like it would have to take action, potentially military action. And indeed, he has even said that Ukraine would be the country where action would be taken. Um, he mm -hmm. highlights back in 2008 with the Bucharest Declaration that NATO said that eventually Georgia and Ukraine, two former Soviet republics, would become NATO members. And even though there was not unanimous agreement necessarily amongst the NATO members about how that would be done and how that would be carried out. Nevertheless, that was considered a red line by Russia. And then, of course, shortly thereafter, Russia invades Georgia in 2008. Then we go forward to 2014, and eventually they take the Crimean Peninsula. And then following that, we then have a, a long, drawn-out kind of civil war type conflict in the eastern provinces of Ukraine, culminating now, of course, in the conflict we have today. And that is why John's words have received a lot of attention lately. And what I point out is that there's actually elements of his argument that I agree with. Um, I agree with certain key parts of his argument. First of all, I do agree that NATO expansion is likely to be perceived as aggressive by Russia. I think there's that is completely understandable. And in fact, one of the key things I like about his argument is he takes very seriously 
the theoretical claims, conceptual claims made long ago by Bob Jervis, right, who recently, recently passed. But Jervis talks about this, of course, his famous book of perception and misperception. One of the ideas that he talks about in that book is that states and leaders have a tendency to view their own actions as completely benign, but then see the same actions by somebody else and see it as having malign intent, right? And then also not necessarily understanding why someone else would not view their own actions as benign. They're like, well, of course, this is just a great thing. And NATO expansion fits into that where, of course, NATO expansion is this good thing and it's helping to stabilize these new democracies. This is something these countries want. So, of course, this would be a good thing. Why would Russia perceive this as a threat? And I think where John's argument is useful is to kind of put that on the table that, look, this is this is an inherent feature of international politics and it's really a core idea that Bob Jervis has done, did a lot of work to make us aware of. So that's a key part of it. Also, another element of his argument that I think is worth and needs to be taken seriously is, is indeed the timing of these things. The Bucharest Declaration, um, other analysts, this was not just a John Mearsheimer comment, other close analysts of that region did label that as a red line for Russia to say that that's probably going to be unacceptable. And even myself, as someone who studied how the Baltic states entered NATO, and of course, the Baltic states being former Soviet republics, just like Ukraine, just like Georgia, I always viewed it that the Baltic states were kind of like they got in, and we can talk about how exactly they got in. This is something else I've discussed on Twitter, but they got into NATO. And at that point, I think Russia basically made the view, the Russia and by Russia talking about Putin, talking about the Russian foreign policy elites said, that's it. No more, no more former Soviet republics are going to get in. And that includes countries like Georgia and Ukraine. So there are elements of his argument that I think do have to be taken seriously. Having said that though, where I think his argument is flawed is the fact that he's putting the onus and he's putting the cause of the conflict and the war that we currently see really almost exclusively on the West. My view is that NATO, even the European Union, because that was an element of this as well, EU expansion, you could put it on the United States if you want to go that far, that they may be exacerbated an already fraught and already tense situation. If you go back to the very early 1990s, you had a lot of scholars of that region, scholars of Russia, scholars of Ukraine, IR scholars who study European politics. All of them were all pointing out that if there was a potential major flashpoint going forward in the post-Cold War era in Europe, it would be Ukraine and Russia that this was long identified going back to the early 1990s. And that was before NATO expansion was ever on the table. So you could say that NATO expansion may be exacerbated an already fraught, already tense situation. And that's something that I think, especially John's most recent arguments, don't do enough to really emphasize. Though, of course, the irony is that John was actually one of these people who did say that back in the 1990s mm-hmm. as well, prior to NATO expansion becoming a major policy. So that's something that I think is really has to be kept in mind is that NATO didn't cause this tense relationship. This relationship was already tense. The other key way in which I disagree with John's argument is I think he doesn't really give any agency 
to the Eastern European countries, to the Central European countries when it came to NATO expansion. His view is that NATO expansion was a project facilitated by the U.S. and facilitated by the U.S. because of an ideological adherence to the promotion of liberal values, democracy promotion, and that NATO and the EU are going to be key parts of that. And so that's why the U.S. is pushing this. And this very much relates to his most recent book, The Grand Illusion, that talks about this idea about how U.S. foreign policy has been kind of diluted by this adherence to this promotion of democracy and promotion of globalization type policy. The problem with that is that's just not consistent with the empirical evidence that we have for why NATO expansion occurred. The Central European countries, Poland, Hungary, Czech Republic, who were the initial ones to join, they, it, they wanted this. They wanted to be part of NATO. And there was also an interest on the part of NATO to bring those countries in, largely because it was viewed not so much about Russia, but it was viewed as key to securing Germany. It's very important to remember that NATO isn't just about Russia. As the old saying that's attributed to Lord Ismay, the first secretary general NATO goes, NATO is about keeping the Americans in the Germans down and the Russians out, right? And so the idea is that that German down part is very important. And so the Central European countries coming in was kind of viewed as key to making Germany feel secure, but also helping those countries to feel secure vis-a-vis -vis Germany, not so much just Russia. But when it came to, as you go further east, and especially with the Baltic states, from the moment they became independent, and they became independent under rather fraught circumstances with Russia in terms of being able to get their troops out of the country and the concerns about repeated threats. From the moment they became independent, they were focused on trying to get into NATO. And the U.S. at the time, Clinton administration was like, no, that's probably not going to happen. That's not something that's on the table. But they kept pushing for this. And again, this is something I researched about the efforts that the Baltic states took. They took efforts through the assistance of Denmark, of course, was a, a who is a NATO member, but also a regional, if you will, kind of a um, Baltic Sea regional um, power as well. And so they took on this responsibility of helping to kind of shepherd the Baltic states into NATO by helping them to demonstrate their value as peacekeepers. And so they created this thing called the Baltic Peacekeeping Battalion that at the time, because of the wars in the Balkans and NATO's expanding role in peacekeeping, that was considered very valuable. So it was those efforts that allowed the Baltic states through their initiative to join NATO. And the reason why they joined NATO was because they said, we don't trust Russia. We are worried about Russia. We are worried about a future Russian invasion. What that leads to is kind of the final point to this, and that is, to me, the best explanation does come from John Mearsheimer, or I should say a better explanation, maybe not the best. There's, there's still a lot we have to unpack and you know it's the best, but a better explanation still comes from John Mearsheimer, but it comes from his book, his classic of Tragedy of Great Power Politics, where he talks about offensive realism. And the idea behind offensive realism is actually very simple. Major powers if they're able to do so, want to be able to dominate their region, right? And in the example he uses for this that kind of informed his development theory is the U.S. itself with um, expansion into the West, the Monroe Doctrine, the U.S. wants to dominate the Western Hemisphere. 
That doesn't mean necessarily annexing all of the Western Hemisphere, but it does mean annexing parts and then also dominating the rest of the region and preventing other powers from coming in. Well, this is what Russia wanted to do. Russia had done this, right? That was the Soviet Union. That was the Russian Empire. So it's not inconceivable that if they had been doing that, they would seek to do it again when they're able to do so. And indeed, my view is that's the view that was within like the Baltic countries, within their, their foreign ministries was when Russia is able to do so again, we can't trust that they're not going to attack us because that's what they do. And so I think that this is that offers a much better explanation, which is that Russia is just simply doing what major powers do, which is trying to control their region. And when it comes to Ukraine, that was a country that was not willing to go along with this. And so as a result, Russia resorted to military force in order to try to accomplish the same. NATO expansion is, again, maybe it exacerbated this tense situation, but it didn't cause it. Thank you, excellent. Um, thank you, Paul. And uh, also on your Twitter, you suggest about potential scenarios, how the Russian invasion can play out. Actually, you started with four, then you increased to five, and kind of brief summary, in the first scenario, you're actually expecting, uh, you may expect a kind of a quagmire, a retreat from Russia and successful insurgency, and it can turn out to be kind of United States in, in Iraq, right? And this is the only scenario that Russia is not successful. And you have four scenarios can, that Russia can be successful. The first one is regime change in Ukraine, like Belarus. So it can be a kind of a Russia-friendly uh, administration. And the, the third one is state theft, right? Russia annex Ukraine, like they did uh, in Crimea. And the fourth one is Russia's overreach, creation of recreation of Russian Empire and Soviet Union. And the fifth one is a major power war where Putin actually become a more ambitious and uh, targeting one of the NATO, especially in the Baltic states. Um, and then it may trigger a World War III. So considering the current situation on the ground now, uh, which scenarios do you think are more likely to take place? And how do these potential outcomes interplay with Putin's endgame? So I think a good way to start with this is, and you did a terrific job of just laying out the five scenarios mm -hmm. uh, that we talked about, is this question dovetails nicely on one of the last points that was raised with the, the previous question, which is that Russia has these imperialist, and by Russia meaning in particular Putin, certain key members of the Russian foreign policy establishment, have these imperialist uh, tendencies or desires, right? And so that's really where the scenarios of annexing Ukraine that you talked about, the state death scenario play in. And indeed, Putin's own words very much are supportive of that, at least initially in terms of his aims was to annex this. It, you know, there was that document that was released um, and then quickly taken down. Uh, the Russian document, that I think it was titled like Solution to the Ukrainian Problem. And it was talking about annexing Ukraine, uh, possibly even creating a union with Belarus. I mean, this is, this is very much in line with recreating the Russian empire. Of course, that fourth scenario would be going even further, invading Moldova, invading, and then finally fully conquering Georgia. That would be kind of the next scenario. Based on the facts that are we're seeing right now, we are absolutely in a condition where the most likely scenario is the quagmire scenario. 
And that is that the objective was regime change, not so much annexation, but that the objective was regime change, but it's, it's proving to be extremely difficult, if not outright unsuccessful. Now, of course, those two things are not exclusive and they don't necessarily have to go together. Like you can have a situation where you still accomplish the regime change, but your, your forces have to stay in to continue to support that new government. And of course, this is Iraq, right? This is what the U.S. experienced with Iraq. You could also have a situation where they get so bogged down the fighting that they don't accomplish the regime change um, and they're still bogged down in fighting. So that would be like the ultimate failure of this of this mission. But we're still it's still too soon to tell if that's what's ultimately going to happen, if there's still the potential, I think, for regime change to be accomplished. But there's the other scenarios are becoming increasingly less likely. And the reason why is because the Russian military, I think, is just not in a condition to annex all of Ukraine. And also, they're not in a condition to then go beyond Ukraine uh, to try to annex other former members of the Soviet Union. That doesn't mean, though, and this is where things get very dicey and why we're still in a dangerous situation. This doesn't mean, though, that the fifth scenario, major power war, is off the table. If anything, we could jump from scenario one to scenario five, right? And that's something that uh, I've talked about and many other analysts have discussed about this concern that Putin could be backed into a corner, right? It could feel like he's backed into a corner where he doesn't have any other options, either with respect to the war itself or even domestically political support. He could be worried about his future uh, in terms of being able to control the country or stay in office. And in that case, you can end up in a scenario that's been called a gambling for resurrection scenario, right? Where he's basically like, I have no other options. I'm going to take this high risk gamble in the hope that maybe it ends the war, gives me a favorable outcome. Um, and in that case, that's where you could see us escalating to a, a level five, right? This fifth scenario. That's where you could see, for example, the use of nuclear weapons. That's where you could see an incursion into a NATO ally. Now, the Baltic states make a lot of sense for reasons we've already talked about. They're former Soviet republics. But I, I actually think the most likely NATO ally to be attacked by Russia under current circumstances is Poland. And the reason why is not because Russia has any territorial aspirations towards Poland, mm -hmm. but because Poland is a destination for a lot of the refugees. And if the insurgency becomes very protracted, there could be the perception that that is a support basing ground for the insurgency and that maybe there has to be incursions into Poland to try to disrupt that. That could be considered a flow of arms into the western part of Ukraine. And so you could see Russia trying to take action against Poland for that reason, purely on an operational side, not so much the territorial acquisition side. And, and if that happens, President Biden has made very clear that the United States, while it will not put troops into Ukraine, will, quote, defend every inch of NATO territory. And that's where you would have the conditions now for major power war. So based on what we're seeing at the moment, we're, the most likely scenario is this scenario one of a quagmire with or without possible regime change. Still too soon to tell if that will be achieved. But there is still the risk that we could jump to the scenario five of major power war. Okay, so excellent points. So is there any way that 
or you know we can see a plausible exit for Ukraine in this war because the war is getting bloodier and increasing civilian deaths and casualties. So is there any potential exit at this moment? This is where this is where I don't want to th- say things get depressing <laughs> because it's not like we've been talking about happy stuff up to this point. But I am someone, I, I am of the view that I am having difficulty seeing two things. I'm having difficulty seeing an off-ramp for Putin. What is mm-hmm. a scenario where he would be willing to say, you know what, this was this was this was a mistake and yeah. we're just going to pull the troops out. I have said the only way that Russian troops leave is when Russian troops decide to leave, that this is not going to be a scenario like the Persian Gulf War in 1991, where a massive coalition goes mm-hmm. in and pushes the, you know, in that case, the Iraq forces out of Kuwait. That's not happening in this case. There's not going to be a massive coalition that's going to push the Russian forces out of Ukraine. They're going to have to leave. And I'm having difficulty foreseeing a scenario where Putin feels like it saves enough face, both domestically and internationally, for him to just say, you know what, we're done. And that relates to the other thing is I'm having trouble seeing what is a potential agreement that could be reached. There have been peace talks. I think they're in their third round of peace talks. Um, or not even peace talks, are really more like ceasefire talks, just trying to achieve a ceasefire here. And the scenarios, even what some people are considering a more moderate proposal by the Russians, I still can't see it as being acceptable. So what is that moderate proposal? So, well, first of all, keep in mind what the main objective was, at least going in, was apparently regime change and annexation of Ukraine. I think Putin's own words make that clear. Given that they're not going to achieve annexation, well, what would be a more moderate deal that might be acceptable? Well, that deal would be granting to Russia the eastern provinces that they've declared independent, granting to Russia um, Crimea. Of course, Russia already controls Crimea, but of course, the Ukrainian government doesn't recognize that. But Kiev could recognize that and say, fine, you, you, we will recognize that you have Ukraine. Um, there's also potential about some sort of like power sharing agreement of where Russia gets to have their preferred candidate be prime minister or something along those lines. And then also that Ukraine would make a pledge to never join NATO, right? That that would be the kind of deal that is considered a more moderate deal. I can't see where Zelensky, the Ukrainian government, finds that deal in any way acceptable, right? And I also don't see where the international community would find that kind Mm -hmm. of deal Acceptable. I think that if Zelensky were to get in contact with Joe Biden, I think Joe Biden would say, you don't take that deal because we're worried about the precedent that would set, right? That, okay, you can use force and then you get, and because we're so worried about your nuclear weapons, we will give you all this stuff. We're going to give you all this territory. We're going to give you this pledge. We're going to give you these things. So I don't see how a deal that would be acceptable to Russia, even a more Mm -hmm. moderate deal from their government, stepping down from the more maximalist aims, I don't even see where that deal would be acceptable to the other side. And so that's the reason why I'm having trouble seeing what is the immediate end game. I'm instead seeing a situation where it becomes a protracted conflict and it could be a conflict that kind of goes to a lower level of fighting. It's just kind of like constant fighting. There's Russian troops there. There's Russian troops in certain regions and other regions. 
maybe there's even parts of Ukraine where people are able to kind of go about their daily lives. You know, this this becomes yeah. then a situation like a, a like a number of countries that experience civil wars, where it's not that the entire country is at war all the time. It's like there's fighting in areas of the country, and then other areas of the country, it seems life is relatively normal. But that would still be this protracted conflict. That's kind of the scenario where I'm I'm seeing this heading. Okay. Okay, thank you. And you mentioned about Putin's speech and you know his ambitions about the Russian Empire, especially when we look at the former Soviet uh, Union Republic countries like Georgia and Moldova, as you mentioned earlier. So how do they approach this conflict? Do you think they are so much concerned about they will be in a similar fate with the Ukrainians face now? I- I think there is concern. I mean, now Moldova is an interesting case because they have a separatist region that has also been kind of supporting the Russian campaign. And there, you know, Moldova is not quite in the same position as Ukraine or Georgia, but similar in that they do have these Russian separatists there. There is these territorial claims. Um, and I, my understanding is that there is concern that despite the fact that Ru- that Putin might realize he can't reconstitute the entire Russian mm-hmm. empire, he might nevertheless still go for Moldova just because, quite honestly, it's a small country, right? If you yeah. already have a separatist group there, if you already have kind of um, some territorial control, why not go for that territory to at least try to show some success, right? And so that is where I think this makes it very difficult for a country like Moldova. Of course, if you look at you know, Georgia, they're already in a tough situation. They've mm-hmm. been in a tough situation. Belarus obviously is aligned with Russia, even though there's been some complications. They've been sending in troops. Um, you know, the countries that have been kind of left out of the conversation are the Central European, or excuse me, Central Asian countries. Um, like Kazakhstan, which of course recently was very much in the news because of the uh, military alliance agreement that Russia has with them and being able to send in troops. And so I think that's part of the reason why they haven't been part of the conversation is because their relationship, first of all, they're geographically not near the fighting, but secondly, their relationship vis-a-vis Russia is closer to a relationship like Belarus than a relationship like Ukraine. And so, yes, I think that there is very much reason for countries, these other former Soviet republics, to be concerned. Obviously, the Baltics are concerned, but the Baltics, unlike all these other countries, are in NATO. And indeed, NATO has been taking steps to send additional troops there because it's not just enough to have the treaty. It's not just enough to have that piece Mm -hmm. of paper. You have to have signaling that you're willing to back it up. And that's why NATO, that's why the United States, they've been sending additional assets to the Baltic states, as well as Poland, to try to shore up that commitment. Okay, so uh, great. What happens when it comes to the Europe and the United States? Do you think the ongoing conflict, and also you highlight the increasing concerning trend um, that affects Europe's security structure vis-a-vis NATO's future plans for enlargement, also Uh, European Union's desire to have its own European army. This is such a fascinating angle to this entire Mm -hmm. conflict. Um, And that is the change by which we're seeing the, or I guess I would say not the change, but the speed of which we are seeing the evolution of European 
uh, foreign policy and if you will even a european grand strategy perhaps right this is um i was part of a panel a few years ago where that was the question of the panel is there such a thing as a european grand strategy right about does the mm-hmm. eu have such a thing and of course for a while i was like well they're just expanding expanding that's the strategy but you can only do that so far and then you have to kind of adjust again and then they're reached because of brexit kind of reached this like stagnant position not sure what's going on this is then coupled with the issues that the eurozone was having with the greek debt crisis so forth so it's like what's the sustainability of this european project there were legitimate concerns about that um but then this war comes along and very much changes at least right now seems to have just completely changed the perception um and i'm reminded of a comment that my a uh, former colleague at Rutgers University, Dan Kellerman, said years ago at a, a seminar. Now, Dan is the Jean Monnet chair at Rutgers mm-hmm. University. So he's obviously a scholar of the EU. That's what he focuses on. And I remember someone asked him at this like conference panel, like, what would it take for the EU to become more like a state? And he gave a very simple, short answer. He said, a war. That was it. You know, he, he's very much kind of of the Tillian view mm-hmm. that war helps make the state, right? And we're observing that. We're seeing that the renewed threat of Russia, the evidence of that threat, you know, again, if you talk to folks in the Baltic states, they would say there's no renewed threat. They've been a threat. You're just now all seeing it, right? Um, but the actualization of that threat has completely, I think, shifted the conversation to where the EU not the individual European countries, but the EU is providing military support, right? There's renewed discussions about this proposal for a European army, which of course went nowhere when Macron brought it up just a few years ago. It didn't go anywhere. And so this has very much changed the conversation. Now, of course, we have to see how this is sustained, right? Because at the end of the day, yes, this war renews the threat, but Europe... The EU itself, I should say, is not being directly attacked, right? And so that's one thing that makes this makes it makes one question the extent to which that renewed emphasis on a unified European foreign policy can be sustained. Now we're seeing movement by Germany to bolster itself, but can that be sustained across all these countries of having it be an EU-wide project? That will remain to be seen. And I I do have some doubts about that because of the fact that the EU itself is not directly being attacked. And absent this war rising to the level of a major power war, Mm -hmm. I do wonder about the ability of these countries to continue on an EU track versus an individual track of military preparedness. Okay, thank you. So how do you evaluate Biden administration strategy and uh, his handling of the crisis. So the Biden administration's handling of this uh, very it dovetails very nicely into what we were just talking mm-hmm. about, and that it's evident that the Biden administration has made it a policy, uh, made it a priority to kind of uh, to use the phrase from the Obama administration to lead from behind, right? That mm-hmm. they have not necessarily been in the forefront. They have instead kind of allowed the Europeans to take the lead on this. But people who are very close to the situation, um, journalists, analysts, will say you can see the hands of U.S. diplomacy involved in everything that's going on with the European policy. 
Uh, you can see that in the coordination for bringing so many countries in Europe and globally on board with the sanctions regime, which we haven't even talked about yet, right? But this is another element, mm -hmm. this massive, unprecedented level of global coordination on economic sanctions with Russia. That's due in no small part to the leadership of the Biden administration to bring these countries on board with it. And doing it not even so much in the friendly diplomatic way, but something that really jumped out at me was when Biden held his first press conference about the after the invasion. And he was asked about SWIFT, which, of course, SWIFT is the money uh, communication mm -hmm. system that allows for dollar transactions to be carried out. And this is something that is considered in many ways like the nuclear option, if you will, for economic sanctions. And there was a desire to have those sanctions put on, but the U.S. didn't initially announce that as part of the package. And people were asking Biden at that press conference, well, why, haven't, why isn't that part of it? And Biden said, well, our European allies don't want it. And then within 24 hours, the European countries all said, no, no, we want to do this. We want to do this. And so that's something that um, my colleague, Rochelle Turman, here at the University of Chicago, she studies um, international shaming, right? When you do this, when a leader will like shame, either shame an adversary because of, say, some human rights violation, or in this case, shame an ally and do it publicly to say, oh, well, you know. We want to do it, but the, the Europeans are the ones who are saying they don't want to do this. And if, since there was so much public desire for this this type of sanction, mm -hmm. quickly you saw the Europeans turn on board. And so that to me was like a very a great example as of you know Joe Biden is pretty good at politics and he's very good at diplomacy and he's very good at inter, at um, the foreign policy side of it. And I think that was a good example of kind of the subtle ways in which the United States has played a role in enabling this coalitional effort to support Ukraine and oppose Russia. Uh, thank you, Paul. Thank you for the great conversation. I learned so much and um, hope to see you in the future as well. well. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Thank you.